Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 25, A Word About Relevance. And in this episode, what I would like to do is to talk about whether or not the Bible is relevant. And I know that might sound like a strange question to ask. Of course, the Bible is relevant. But for us to explore a little bit of how is it that the Bible is relevant And I'd like to address a couple of errors that I think people make, unconsciously maybe, but make nonetheless, when they come and approach the Bible assuming that it is relevant and trying to apply it to their own lives. And so this episode will help us again as we continue to understand how best to interpret the Bible, and it will help us avoid a couple of pitfalls that often trip people up unknowingly. So let's get right into it for this week's episode. I'd like to begin this week's episode by simply defining the word relevant. And if you look this up in a dictionary, you're going to find the definition of something similar to having significant bearing on the matter at hand. And that's really all the word relevant means. And I know for many Christians, myself included, we really do believe that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. And so you and I know that the Bible speaks into our own lives. Therefore, it has something to say about the matter at hand. And yet what I've found, and I, I think I shared this at length in one of the first few podcast episodes, but beginning to understand how is it that people generally approach the Old Testament. And one of the most common ways that people do, which I think is driven by this need for the Old Testament to be relevant, is that they will read the Old Testament stories, many of the Old Testament narratives, David and Goliath, or Abraham and Isaac, or the story of Jonah, or Daniel and the lion's den, And this is what I remember hearing growing up was it was exhortations to be like David, be like Moses, don't be like Jonah, don't be like Samson, except on certain instances where he was filled with the Spirit. And we are trying to make significant bearing on the matter at hand. We are trying to make the Old Testament speak into our own lives because unconsciously or sometimes quite consciously, When people say the Bible is relevant, a lot of times what they mean by the word relevant is that which is immediately applicable to my personal life situation. And so in other words, they define the matter at hand, and the matter at hand is their own personal life. And so you will find pictures of verses that are hanging up in the window of someone's house that are a verse from the Bible removed from its context, but wanting to be applied directly to the individual. Um, Now, we've been talking all through this podcast about the idea that the Bible is ultimately about God's plan of redemption affecting the entire creation his restoration of his kingdom for his people, for the benefit of the nations. If all of that is true, and we are looking at what it means to be human, and what it means to rule the world well as God's image bearers, then the Bible has a message spoken to all of humanity, 
Of course, I'm a part of that. But the message that the Bible presents is one that, um, that actually allows God himself to define the matter at hand, not us. And so the plan that he has for us no doubt involves us, but it is not always primarily about us. And if you can keep that in mind as you read the Bible, it will clear up a lot of confusion regarding when we go looking and searching high and low for making the Bible immediately relevant or applicable to our own personal lives. It really discourages us from grasping the ultimate meaning of Scripture and what it is actually intending to communicate. Now, I'm not sharing any of this because I think I want you to be discouraged, but I mean, what is the matter at hand? That's the issue of relevance. We don't know. And I, you've heard me say this once, and I hope to continue to repeat it, but we are letting the Bible tell its own story and trying our hardest not to insert our own agendas or the questions we have from our 21st century American Western worldview, we are allowing the Bible to tell its own story and to inform our worldview, not the other way around. And this is very, very counterintuitive, but it is absolutely crucial to do if we will allow God to be God and to allow his word to address for us what things are relevant and allow us to find our place in the story, recognizing that the Bible is written for us, but it is not written to us. The Bible is, is written to people who lived at different times and in different eras. It's written to churches that are not your particular church or my particular church. And yet we can watch how God, who is our God, relates with humans of which we are a part, and we can see how his mercy affected them when some of their actions resembled the kind of actions that we participate in. And so we can take tremendous blessing, tremendous insight, tremendous encouragement. The Bible is a reliable source of information about who God is and what he's doing in the world and what he has done in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And you and I can gain benefit from that. But we need to understand God's big plan first, trust him to define relevance for us, and then invite us into finding relevance in our own lives as he defines it, not as we define it. And for me, growing up in the 80s as a kid, one of the easiest ways I've ever been able to figure out this idea of relevance and getting myself out of the way long enough to trust God to define relevance for me is from the 1984 movie, The Karate Kid. So some of you who are listening to this may be familiar with this movie. Others of you may not be. But in general, The Karate Kid, you know the story. Daniel LaRusso and his mom move across the country to a new place. He is having a rough time making friends. He finds a girl that he finds particularly cute and yet finds that there's a rough group of, of boys who likes this girl and does not like Daniel for being interested in her. Long story short, Daniel gets beat up by this group of friends, and he meets up with a repairman in his apartment complex, Mr. Miyagi, the hero of the film, right? But there's a particular moment where Daniel asks Mr. Miyagi if he would train him in the art of karate. 
if he would be his instructor. And you know how the movie goes, or if you don't, let me share with you. But he, Mr. Miyagi says, sure, okay, we'll do it. Why don't you come over to my house? We're going to start training. And Daniel is incredibly excited. He goes over to the house. And Mr. Miyagi asks him to wax his cars, paint his fence, sand his deck, paint his house. Day after day after day, Daniel feels like a slave. He feels like a servant. Mr. Miyagi is out fishing. He's sleeping in late. He's out, uh, you know, riding around on the town. All of the time, Daniel is frustrated because days on end, he's doing nothing but Mr. Miyagi's dirty work. And so there's this one point in the film where Daniel explodes at his so-called teacher and he's prepared to walk away from everything. He yells at Mr. Miyagi. He says that he's doing nothing to help him. He's come to get training. Where is the relevance? What does all of this have to do with learning karate? Why on earth does Daniel need to be waxing a fence or waxing a car and painting a fence, painting a house, sanding a deck, and in the best scene of the film, hands down, Relevance for Daniel takes on forms and meaning that no other set of disciplines could ever teach him. Mr. Miyagi faces off with him on the back deck and tells him to paint the fence. And as he goes through a motion that is now burned into his muscle memory, he shows Daniel precisely how that motion can block a forward punch. He then tells him to wax the car and he is able to deflect a kick away from his body. He then tells him to paint the fence and he blocks another punch. And then Mr. Miyagi unleashes an array of kicks and punches and slaps, every one of which Daniel knocks out of the way, perfectly defending himself in the art of karate. And at the end of that scene, Mr. Miyagi gently bows to Daniel Daniel bows back in sort of a state of stunned shock. And then Mr. Miyagi walks off the patio. Daniel is stunned. Because in a flash of, in one single moment, all of his relevance becomes clear. Mr. Miyagi is the master teacher. Mr. Miyagi is the hero. Mr. Miyagi is the one driving the entire training process. But Mr. Miyagi alone reserves the right to define what the matter at hand is, what things need defined, what things are actually important that Daniel has no clue are actually important. And the rest of the film continues with Daniel basically deciding from this point on, I'm going to trust whatever this man says because he knows karate and he knows how to teach it. And I can't think of a better example of that than basically approaching God in the same way. We need a teacher who can redefine relevance for us. We need a teacher who can train us in the matter at hand. There are so many beautiful truths in the Old Testament, intricately woven themes, some of which we've already looked at, countless insights into the character and nature of God that you and I will miss if we read the Old Testament merely for how the stories and laws and illustrations apply to us personally. And so I guess in a sense, this episode is somewhat of a caution. 
It's a caution against thinking that the only way something can be valuable for me is if it applies directly to me. And I've listened to enough Christians in the way that they talk, and they always want to make it very, very relevant in the immediate sense. And I do not think that that is actually incredibly helpful because God's given us many narratives, many psalms, many po- you know, sections of poetry and scripture. And with a little bit of work, we can see the relevance that those portions of scripture have, not only for our own personal lives, but on God's ultimate plan of redemption. Okay, so let's suppose that you're ready to embrace the fact that God himself gets to define what's relevant for us, not primarily us. And therefore, we want to see what is going on in these biblical passages, primarily from God's perspective first, and then finding our place in the story. How, how do we do that? And I think there are probably a handful of ways that we can, but I would like to share just one with you on this episode, and that is recognizing that Scripture ultimately needs to be read. And, and again, I'm going to emphasize for our podcast the Old Testament, but the Old Testament, at least as a starting point, needs to be read recognizing that there are constantly three levels of Scripture operating at the exact same time in nearly every narrative that you come across in the Old Testament. And so let me just give these to you, and then we'll use an example from the Old Testament so that you understand exactly what I'm talking about. So the very first example, the first level, you might call the redemptive history level. It's just the meta narrative. It's just the grand narrative of Scripture, what Scripture is doing as a whole. And you have heard me numerous times talk about this in the first few chapters of Genesis. This is the big picture. This is the whole universal plan of God worked out through his entire creation. You might have heard it stated as creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the big picture. This is keeping in mind that everything you are reading and everything that is happening is happening for the benefit of all humanity restoring all humanity back to a right relationship with God in a garden-like state for the purpose of bringing him the most honor and glory and eventually culminating in a new heavens and in a new earth. That is the big picture as we read about it in the first handful of chapters in the book of Genesis. It is the redemptive history level. The second level is what we could call the covenant people level. We looked at in episode two that what the Lord God does in Genesis 12 by calling a man named Abram and promising to make him into a great nation so that through him all the nations of the earth can be blessed, the Lord God is reversing the curse that happened to all humanity and he promises to do that through a particular family, through a particular group of people. He chooses, and the Old Testament is one giant story of God's dealings with a particular nation, a particular people, the purpose of which is to set them up to become the means through which and by which God will bless the rest of the world, which comes right back to our first level, our redemptive history level. And so the covenant people, this second level of scripture, is something like the call of Abraham, 
or Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, Israel and their time in Egypt. It's the Exodus. It's going to Mount Sinai and receiving the law, the conquest of the promised land, all of their idolatry, the destruction of Israel and Judah, their exile, and then their return from exile. This is the bulk of the Old Testament. When you are reading accounts of what happens with this people, you're not first and primarily meant to say, ah, that's what they did. Here's what I do. Here's the way it should flip. You need to recognize that the Lord God chose Israel. He chose a covenant people to carry out the plans that he originally had for all mankind, but mankind tripped up. Of course, you watch Israel trip up, but they're simply a reflection of what mankind as a whole does which will open up a whole new discussion for us in future episodes. But for now, let's just keep in mind, you've got your redemptive history level, you have your covenant people level, and your third level is your individual narrative level. This is where you and I are real comfortable. This is what we remember hearing as kids in Sunday school. It's these are the stories that make up the other two levels. So you've got your David and Goliath. You've got your Daniel in the lion's den. You have individuals, a few main characters, some type of conflict, some type of conflict resolution, some type of question whether or not these individuals are going to trust the Lord God and his ways, what they're going to do in the face of their own sinfulness, etc. And these are oftentimes the ways that we want to quickly apply the Bible to our own lives. We see a situation where an individual is faced with a similar situation to ourselves, and we decide that in that moment, I'm going to make the relevant application to my own personal life. And there are times when you can do that, but I think it's important to realize that the individual narrative level is simply the way you and I get to see in microscopic form the outworking of the covenant people level and then ultimately the outworking of the redemptive narrative level. And so let me give you an example of this. If you go to Genesis 22, and I won't read it for you for the sake of time, but many of you may know the story. It is the offer of Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. The Lord God comes to Abram. He asks him to sacrifice his son, his only son, on top of the mountain. And I have heard sermons. I have read little booklets. I've seen books printed this way talking about sacrificing your Isaac, what is something that is important to you that you would therefore need to be able to offer to God as, a, as an expression of your faith? And sadly, uh, the, those types of approaches to the Bible jump right into the camp that says the Bible is relevant because it's immediately applicable to my own personal life. And I want to see myself in Abraham. I want to see that I'm holding on to something in my own life that, like Abraham, I should be willing to let go of in my relationship with God. And it becomes a very, very narrow, very individualistic, very, very personal. And personal is not bad. But personal, rejecting everything else that's happening in the story does become bad because then it makes you and your own life, the focal point of an entire passage of scripture. But let's look at Genesis 22, the offer of the sacrifice of Isaac, in all three levels, instead of just the, the character level that, that many people are common, commonly looking at it to. The covenant people is the second level. Abraham is the father of the eventual covenant people. 
And what is absolutely crucial to the covenant people becoming a covenant people through Abraham is that Abraham has to have a son in order to have a covenant people. And if you back up a few chapters, you find out that Abraham approaches his, his wife, Sarah, who is barren, who cannot have a son, and says, wow, there's no way we're going to be able to fill, fulfill God's mandate to have a great nation. We can't even get pregnant. And Sarah says, okay, here's my servant, Hagar. Why don't you go into her? Why don't you take her as a wife? And, and produce a son through her, he then can be the son that, that the Lord God chooses to make a great nation out of. And so Hagar is a woman who gets used by Abraham at the request of Abraham's own wife to serve the purposes of nothing more than to give Abraham a son. And the story is actually quite sad at this point, but Hagar ends up getting rejected by Sarah later in the story for, I don't know, not having the right presence, not having the right attitude toward her and the birth of her own son, Isaac. In the covenant story, God is not simply asking Abraham to give up something to God that is important to Abraham. That's a, a, a gross misreading of that passage. In fact, what the Lord God is asking Abraham to do is to give up the very means through which Abraham once almost ruined a woman's life trying to gain a son, Hagar and her son Ishmael. And the Lord is now saying, you were willing to do tremendous things in order to gain a son so that I could bless the nations through your offspring. Do you trust me enough and the promises that I am making to you enough to give up the child that you worked so hard for and wrecked so many lives for in order to see born? Are you willing to give him up and trust that I can still bless the world through your people? This is reading the Genesis 22 story in the context of the first and second levels together. And they need to be read together. Because if you don't read them together, you kind of blow right past the fact that this is not just something Abraham is being asked to sacrifice. He is being asked to sacrifice the very person that is necessary for him to have a great nation. And then you need to ask yourself, why is it important for Abraham to be made into a great nation? Ah, now you're asking a first level question. The reason why it is important for Abraham to have a great nation is because it is through Abraham's great nation that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And why do all the nations of the world need to be blessed? They all need to be blessed because right now, as a result of Genesis 11, they are scattered across the face of the earth with confused languages and no awareness of the presence of the Lord God such that they can receive intimacy with Him, relationship with Him, communion with Him, and properly ruling and reigning over the earth as His image bearers in close fellowship with Him. And so when you begin to look at a story like Genesis 22, reading it through all three levels, you realize Abraham, sure, is a 
follower of God and he's being asked to make a sacrifice, but the reason he's being asked to make a sacrifice is because his covenant people need to come from Isaac. And the reason the covenant people need to come from Isaac is because the Lord God ultimately chooses to and wants to bless the entire world. And so you will watch these themes unfold all through the Old Testament. You will see individual characters, Samson, but he's not just an individual. He is a representative. He's a representative leader. He's a representative head of all the covenant people. And therefore, some of the actions that he participates in are mirror images of the kinds of things that the covenant people, the Israelites, are also struggling with. But the reason why the covenant people are struggling with these things isn't just because they're the covenant people. They are a simply a slice of the pie of all humanity, which pushes us right back to the first level, the redemptive historical level, the need for all humans, whether those who are in covenant with God or those who are not, all human beings are fallen and estranged and define good and evil on their own and therefore need redeemed in order to restore their relationship with God to the way it always should be. And so when you read stories like David and Goliath or the book of Jonah in the whale or Daniel in the lion's den, or you read about Israel's struggles with idolatry, keep in mind all three levels. They are humanity first, God's covenant people as a community second, who, remember, are also part of humanity. And then you have these individuals who act in ways that resemble the way individuals live, but they do so as part of a covenant community and as part of humanity as a whole. And so if you think about it like an upside-down triangle with the the flat part across the top and the point at the very bottom, you've got all humanity on the top third – a subcategory of all humanity, you have Israel as a covenant community, and then as a farther subpoint of Israel as a covenant community, you have little pockets, little families, little tribes, individuals who are also representatives of the covenant community, and then also representatives of humanity as a whole. And this is why last week in the podcast on God's big picture and looking at the kingdom of God. I spent a little bit more time talking about Jesus as not only the perfect human being, but also as the true and faithful Israelite. You see, Jesus as an individual fits this third level. He's the individual who is doing certain actions and saying certain things and being treated in certain ways. But Jesus is also standing in the place of the nation of Israel as a whole, as a whole covenant community in their relationship with God. And yet you cannot get away from the fact that Jesus also is stepping in the gap as the ideal human being who is representative of this third level of Scripture as well, this redemptive historical level. And so when Scripture says that in Christ all things are united in Him, things in heaven and on earth, you can also add to it all three levels of Scripture. Find their ultimate place and purpose in the person of Jesus. And so it's crucial for you and I as we read the Old Testament, even as we read the New Testament, to keep this in mind. These three levels of scripture, 
this ultimate level that deals with all humanity and God's plans for the entire world, his more specific level of the covenant people, what God is doing with his own people, how he is threatening judgment and then promising blessing on them for their own actions. They are a microcosm, a small slice of what God's attitudes and actions are toward the entire world. And then the third level are the individual actions, behaviors, good deeds, wicked deeds that are done by people in the individual narratives that are reflections of the kinds of things that the covenant community as a whole is performing, which are then ultimate reflections of the way humanity as a whole operates. And in future weeks, we will take a look at some more specific examples of how this works, why this is important, how the New Testament can take themes that were so developed in the Old Testament and apply them so freely to the lives of Christians, to churches, and to a new covenant community, which Jesus has established through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so relevance is the key. We want the Bible to be relevant, but the Bible has the most promise of being relevant when we allow God first to define the matter at hand, to define relevance for us, and to lead us along the way to see what kind of issues we might not be aware of that God is actively addressing through his word. And then when we find our place in that story, it will have so much more meaning, so much more substance, so much more depth, and we will be changed for it. So that's all the time we have for this week's episode. I'm so thankful that you are listening in. As you hear me say at the end of each one of these episodes, I would love for you to leave a review or a rating or both on whatever podcast app you're choosing to listen to this on. It really helps other listeners to find the podcast and be able to decide whether they want to tune in or not. Thank you again for those of you who are supporting the podcast on a monthly basis. Um, I would love to have more support. It enables me to do uh, clever things with this podcast and hopefully we'll be able to keep the costs down but if those costs ever increase then I'll be able to cover them with with your generous support so I do thank you for that and then if you'd like to email me any questions thoughts comments things that you'd like me to discuss on the podcast please feel free to send me an email at unbindingthebible at gmail.com that's all the time we have for this week see you next time